We now continue repairing the breach with chapter four. Uh, I am the author and I'm reading slash doing a little bit of commenting on uh, the chapters as we go through. This chapter may have a little more commenting than normal simply because uh, in places I'm, I'm almost in a cliff notes sort of version as I put information together. This chapter is titled Paradigm Shifters. The outer layer of the Earth's crust is formed of large plates called tectonic plates that move. The regions where the plates rub against each other are called fault lines, and predictably, as the plates shift, friction along the fault lines is stored up until some tiny movement causes the plates to suddenly and violently snap toward a position of relief. This snap, or earthquake, comes with no warning radically shaking the ground and sometimes even reshaping the landscape. Mounting evidence contrary to our established thought patterns rarely leads to gradual change. What more often happens is a sudden and massive shift, much like an earthquake. This is called a paradigm shift. Essentially, bits of mounting evidence that challenge our established thought pattern begin building up until we suddenly find that we have a new thought pattern that more accurately reflects what we know to be true. Following are a couple posts that reveal verses and concepts that, when evaluated, will shift our thought process and bring us into a more biblical alignment. I titled these paradigm-shifting thoughts and verses because they can shake up long-held beliefs that may not be entirely true. So enjoy and study each of these verses. They may bring change, but with it, they draw us closer to the fullness of truth. The first of the articles that I have here was titled 10 Paradigm-Shifting New Testament Verses, and it was originally posted on March the 9th, 2013. Maybe I'm the only person this happens to, but have you ever read a verse that you've read a a hundred times and suddenly you see it totally differently? Like a bolt of lightning or a V8 moment, you suddenly understand it in a whole new light. Now on the page here, I have an optical example of that where it's one of those neat little drawings where you can look at it one way and it's a beautiful young woman and you look at it just slightly differently. You just change your angle a little bit or just change your focus a little bit, and all of a sudden, it is a very old woman. And sometimes seeing one can become an impediment to seeing the other, yet both the old woman and the young woman in this, in this picture are cleverly there. Theologically, we can be told a certain paradigm or traditional understanding so many times that we can't see something else that is obviously there. Yet, taking time to ponder and refocus can suddenly open whole new worlds of understanding that utterly shift our paradigm. Here are 10 such New Testament verses that are paradigm shifters. So I pray that they challenge you as much as they first challenged me when they hit me. Because they open big doors to big blessings. The first one is, Yeshua said... Matthew chapter 19, uh, 5, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Right here, Yeshua tells us exactly how to be least in the kingdom. Have you ever noticed that? He says, here's how to be least in the kingdom. Annul one of the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same. So who wants to be least in the kingdom? Any takers? No hands? Believe it or not, 99% of all Christian denominations from Rome to the uttermost parts of the earth teach not that least commandments are done away with, but that whole chapters of Scripture no longer apply. Most Reformed Presbyterian denominations abide by the Westminster Confession of Faith. And chapter 19, verse 3 says, All which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. The dictionary says that abrogated means annulled. Therefore, this document drafted by men directly contradicts the words of Yeshua. So who do we believe? The Westminster divines or the divine Messiah? Do you want to be least in the kingdom or great? Hmm. Seems like a no-brainer, but then verses like this one demand that we use our brain and swim against the tide of theological tradition. This requires a paradigm shift. Number two, in Acts chapters six and seven, we read the story of the first martyr, Stephen. Have you ever paid attention to why he was martyred? Exactly how did he wind up before the Sanhedrin? This verse will shake up some, some theology. Acts chapter six, verses 13 and 14 says, they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, or the Torah. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and after the customs which and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Acts chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. Stephen was stoned to death for teaching against the temple and against the Torah. However, the Sanhedrin had to use false witnesses to bring the charges. False witnesses. Let that sink in. Do you know what that means? Yep, it means Stephen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit in the months or year immediately following the resurrection of Messiah, Yeshua, was not teaching against the law. In fact, he was zealous for Moses, as we will see in a minute. Ironically, 99% of Christendom today could be charged with teaching against the temple and against the Torah, and the charges would be true. Huh. By implication of the testimony of these false witnesses, Yeshua did not alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Paradigm shift. Number three. The Apostle Paul, is coming in coming up to Jerusalem to give a report, tells of the wonders being worked in Asia Minor among the Gentiles. Acts chapter 21 verse 20 relates to us the excited response about those who believed in Jerusalem. Acts 21 20, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are zealous for the, the law, the Torah. Belief in Messiah does not negate or nullify the Torah. Rather, it should increase our zeal for obedience out of love. Here's a question. 
Do theologians 1,000 to 2,000 years removed from Jerusalem and the apostles know more than James and Paul and all the elders who are standing here witnessing this meeting? I don't think so. This verse is a paradigm shifter. They were keeping the Torah. Number four, just a couple verses later may be the single most shocking verse in the New Testament for most Christians. As a pastor, when I read and fully understood this verse, it totally rocked my world. Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Yep. You just read, or I just read and you heard, that Paul the apostle and possible author of Hebrews was in the temple offering sacrifices about 20 years after his Damascus Road experience. And he was seized not for offering sacrifices, but for allegedly, I put that in quotes, bringing Gentiles into the temple courts. And it was false witnesses again. Paul was offering sacrifices in the temple. Ponder the significance to most theology that says the sacrificial system had been done away with. Yes, this is really heavy, but it is a reality in Scripture that must be dealt with. Zechariah chapter 14, 21 speaks of future sacrifices. So does, uh, so does Ezekiel 43 and 44. Parts of Isaiah allude to the same. Sacrifices in the future is a challenging and paradigm-shifting topic. Number five, having read and wrestled with the previous question, many come to the conclusion that Paul was just acting according to custom and meant no theological harm. While this would make him out to be a liar, let's just go with one of four of his legal testimonies. Acts chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the Torah of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Ah, the presence of false witnesses. And if you go back and look at those different passages that, uh, that deal with Paul, it tells us multiple times that false witnesses in the book of Acts, false witnesses were brought against him to try to charge him with changing the Torah and doing away with it. Paul, by his own testimony, clearly states that he has not committed offense against the Torah or the temple. So either he is lying or he's telling the truth. If Paul is lying, can we trust anything else he has written? If he is telling the truth, how can we claim he taught against the Torah? Teaching against the Torah is an offense against the Torah that is punishable by death. Q. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 through 13, verse 11. Seriously, if Paul was teaching against the Torah, why didn't his accuser simply go get a copy of the letter to the Galatians? According to Christendom, it was his defining work against the Torah. There's all the proof his accusers needed. 
And just for the record, that was a letter he likely wrote before Acts chapter 15. Therefore, it was widely available to his accusers in the nearly 10 years prior to his arrest. Long story short, Galatians is not about doing away with the law. It is about the misuse of the law for salvation. And I like the, I like the line from The Princess Bride. I do not think it means what I do not think that word means what you think it means. I believe Paul is the one in heaven that's going to be wearing the neon green shirt with the big thing, big sign and blossom on the front that says, I did not say what you think I said. Paul said, I have committed no offense against either the law of the Jews or against the temple. Ponder deeply, no offense against the law. That's a paradigm shifter. Number six, Paul wrote many of the epistles and often verses taken out of context to prove uh, many of the epistles and often verses are taken out of context to prove an antinomian or anti-Torah, anti-law bias. Here is something the Apostle Paul said that theologians love to ignore or completely tap dance around. Acts chapter three, verse thirteen. No, that's not Acts chapter 3. That should be Romans 3. I've got a typo in my book. Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the Torah through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. In one verse, Paul declares, through faith we establish the law. We do not nullify it. Most Pauline theology misuses proof texts to to demonstrate that he did away with the law. Yet Paul affirms the Torah over and over. If in some passages he overturns the Torah and in others he affirms the Torah, then we have a schizophrenic apostle on the loose. Maybe, just maybe, we have misunderstood or willfully misused some of his writing to be stiff-necked and rebellious, just like our fathers. Meditate on this. Paul said, by faith, we establish the Torah. That's a paradigm shifter. Number seven. So how did Paul ever get so misunderstood and whacked out? The apostle Peter tells us and issues a warning. Second Peter chapter three, verses 15 through 17. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Peter tells us plainly, Paul's letters can be hard to understand, the ignorant and unstable distort him, and the result is lawlessness. We would easily agree that Paul can be hard to understand, but what does this verse mean by ignorant and unstable? The ignorant and unstable are those who do not have a firm foundation in the Torah. Other translations call them unlearned and untaught. We have already seen that Paul upheld the Torah, and we see here that the error of these unlearned teachers leads to lawlessness. 
Paul was steeped in the Torah and was zealous for the Torah. He would not dare or even dream of teaching against the perfect Torah. The error of twisting Paul is lawlessness. Does modern theology teach lawfulness or lawlessness? Does your understanding of Paul lead to lawfulness or lawlessness? Peter warns, be on your guard that you are not carried away by the error of lawlessness. Paradigm shift. Number eight. In fact, what is the error of lawlessness? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The Torah, the law, defines sin. Breaking the law is sin. Therefore, lawlessness or Torahlessness is sin. Doing away with the law is doing away with the definition of sin, and indeed the act is sin itself. Annul a commandment? Sin. Teach against the commandments? Sin. Avoid or ignore the commandments? Sin. See? This is why Yeshua could not have changed the law or abolished anything before or after his atoning sacrifice. Doing so would be sin. Paradigm shift. Number nine, Yeshua did not change the law. How do we know besides his own declaration that I did not come to abolish the law? The author of Hebrews declares, chapter 13, verse eight, Jesus Christ, or Yeshua HaMashiach, is the same yesterday and today and forever. The apostle John tells us that Yeshua is the word and he was in the beginning. A study of the rabbinic understanding of the Messiah being the word, or memrah, reveals the clear connection that not only was Yeshua present at creation, but he was also present at Mount Sinai and likely was the one who met Moshe on the mountain. Thus, he gave the Torah. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. When we truly understand his eternality and involvement in every level of scripture, then we realize the memrah, the word, doesn't change. The law doesn't change. Isn't that what Yeshua said? Until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law and the prophets. Not one jot, not a single consonant, not one paradigm shifter. And number 10. What we absolutely have to come to grips with is that Yeshua and the Father are one, echad, united. They are not in opposition. Yeshua only taught what the Father gave him, and nowhere is the Torah ever prophesied to be done away with or in any way reduced. Never. Yeshua said in John chapter 7, verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Yeshua only taught the word of his father. It's time for a paradigm shift. Now, there are many, many more verses that support what we have seen here in this post. These are not isolated, cherry-picked verses, but they do reveal the need to reevaluate the errant doctrines and traditions of men that teach against the Torah. Be on guard that you're not carried away by the error of lawless men. The Apostle Peter.
The second post that is part of chapter four is titled 10 Paradigm Shifting Old Testament Verses. And this was originally published in, on November 16th, 2013. Discussion and thinking are very important. Most people simply accept what they are told by their parents and or pulpit, and they never question the establishment. Frankly, when we stand before the judge, he is not going to see if we adhere to what our parents or denomination believed. He is going to judge us by his standard, Scripture. And we are each accountable for what we have in our hand, even if we choose not to study it. That would be the Bible. Since we looked at New Testament verses, it's only fair to consider some Old Testament paradigm-shifting verses. The great challenge is that there are about five times as many verses to choose from, so whittling the list down to just ten is quite hard. But here goes. I've written about a number of these verses at one point or another, so I would encourage finding this post on Natsav and following the links if a particular topic piques your interest or challenges your paradigm. Number one, Isaiah 40, verse 8, is an oft-quoted verse, especially from the pulpit. But I really wonder if we stop and ponder the magnitude. The verse says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God stands forever. Forever. Doctrines and, tradition, uh, doctrines and traditional theologian understanding are quick to declare parts of God's word as done away with. This is really hard to square with the word of our God stands forever. Yeshua told us that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law and the prophets until heaven and earth pass away. Which kind of sounds like the word of our God stands forever. But there are entire denominations that declare certain parts of God's eternal or everlasting word to be annulled or abrogated. I've even heard pastors in these denominations read scripture, then recite this verse before preaching from their text. Huh. The irony. Wonder if they ever stop to think about what they say if they're preaching that some part of God's law is done away with. The word of our God says, the word of our God stands forever. When we fully understand that what that sentence says, it is paradigm shifting. Number two, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's true, but that is not the paradigm shifter. The apostle Paul had to remind his readers of this fact when establishing the importance of salvation by faith. They fully understood the rest of the story. Today, we're unfamiliar with the rest of the story. So here it is, Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Yahweh is speaking to Isaac, and he says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah. Because faith without works is dead. Faith opens the door. Faith lets us into the family, but obedience then evidences that faith. Lack of obedience equals no faith, period. Modern theology's easy believism and endless free grace is appalling. 
There are poor excuses to allow the trampling of God's or there are poor excuses to allow the trampling of God's commandments and expectations. Understanding that Abraham had and kept Torah is a real boggler that totally flies in the face of Christian theology that says Abraham just believed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah. Paradigm shifter. Number two. More than once since beginning to keep more of my king's commandments, I have had well-meaning Christians tell me that trying to keep the commandments would lead to death and judgment, that I had to live by them, never mind that they misquote Paul's use of Torah and twist it to say exactly the opposite of what it says. In fact, the Torah says that observing the commandments leads to righteousness and life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before Yahweh our Elohim, just as he commanded us. Why wouldn't we want to keep the Torah? It is the definition of righteousness and God's desire for how we are to live. Today, Christendom loves to denigrate the Torah. Set free from the law, they say, but Yahweh promises to bless those who are obedient. Hmm. It will be righteousness for us. Paradigm shifter. Number four, God's not interested in actions. He's interested in the heart. Don't you know anything? Yeah, Christendom seems to think that something changed at the cross and that the heart became more important. I guess they never read Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. It says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. Yep, a circumcised heart is a Torah concept. There are multiple places in the Torah that a circumcised heart is talked about. The Father's desire has always been a circumcised heart, but a circumcised heart will lead, will lead to obedience to keeping all my commandments forever. No surprise there if you know your Bible. See Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24 through 28. So the word of our God that stands forever says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always. That'll shake up the laws been done away with paradigm. Hmm. Number five, be ye holy. The Apostle Peter speaks of holiness and quotes a passage from the Torah. Ever look it up? It'll shift your paradigm. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. For I am Yahweh your Elohim. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your Elohim. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. While we all agree that holiness is a concept throughout Scripture, do we understand that Yahweh gives several specific marks or works that lead to holiness? The above quoted passage is one of them, but we have to read the larger context. Here's the Pete Rambo condensed version, since many will not take the time to read the whole chapter of Leviticus 11. Eat the clean animals. Do not eat the unclean animals. They are detestable. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
Learn the difference in the clean and the unclean between the edible and the detestable. Leviticus 11. God. Nowhere has Yahweh's standard of holiness ever changed, nor has his definition of food ever changed. Simply, swine were detestable then, they're detestable now, and will be on Judgment Day, according to Isaiah chapter 66, verses 16 and 17. Some might say Peter's vision in Acts 10 changed the food laws, but that vision is defined for us by Acts chapter 10, verse 28. The vision is not about food. One aspect of holiness, according to the word of our God that stands forever, is what we eat. That thought is a wrench in the middle of lawless theology. It's a paradigm shifter. Number six. Somehow the word forever and perpetual mean nothing to Christendom. Seriously, it seems that deep-thinking theologians have way more trouble with forever than a third grader does. So put your third grader glasses on and read these verses and then we'll have a test. A piece of candy if you get the correct answer. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So in those four statements, true or false, the statutes referred to are to be, are, I'm sorry, true or false, the statutes referred to by these verses ended at the cross. If you said true, you're in the company of Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Bunyan, and a billion Christians, and you're wrong, period. The verses all come from Leviticus chapter 23, and this chapter details the feasts of the Lord, and we are told multiple times throughout the chapter that the feasts are perpetual statutes throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. That kind of sounds like till heaven and earth pass away, doesn't it? Hmm? Also, for those who like to argue that the law only applies in the land of Israel, the phrase in all your dwelling places puts the kibosh on that error. Honestly, scripture only requires about a fifth grade education to get the important parts. It's the theologians doing mental gymnastics trying to find ways to justify lawlessness that cause trouble. Forever? and perpetual mean forever. <laughs> Blindingly obvious, I know. But for some, this is paradigm shifting. Number seven, since we're talking about forever and perpetual as well as throughout your generations and in all your dwellings, here's another one that just rocks the whole Christendom theological world. Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 13 and 16 through 17. Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, or my Shabbats. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Shabbat to celebrate the Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. <clears throat> oh, 
And the word of our God that stands forever says that keeping the Sabbath is a sanctification issue. Hmm. For much more on the Sabbath issue, NotSob.com has a paper that my, my then 16-year-old son wrote, and it bears studying. For those who might focus on sons of Israel, I would recommend rereading Ephesians 2.12 until you understand what it means to be grafted in. This particular topic is deeply challenging, but the truth will set you free. Simply, the day of worship designated in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned was the seventh day, Shabbat. Yeshua kept the seventh day, Shabbat. Nowhere are we ever commanded or is it ever implied that the day of worship was changed by God. The word says, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Shabbat to celebrate the Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual olam covenant. Paradigm shifting. Number eight. We've talked about the fact that the word of our God stands forever. His word also says that we are not to add or subtract from that word. Interestingly, it says that in a particularly important place. Let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 12, 32 through 13, 5. <clears throat> Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your Elohim, Yahweh your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow Yahweh your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Simply, neither Yeshua Jesus or Shaul, Paul, had any desire or authority to change, add to, or take away from the commandments. Doing so would have been sin. Both addressed the many traditions and oral law that had been added by the rabbis, but neither ever overturned a single jot or tittle from the Torah. Study for yourself and find this to be true. It will totally shift your paradigm. Number nine. By now, many who read this chapter are a bit confused and scratching their heads. Obviously, what you are seeing here is not what you've been taught in the pulpit. I understand. I was in your shoes a couple years ago. Let's look a couple at a couple more verses from the word of our God that stands forever. Psalm 97. This should be Psalm 19. Hmm, another typo. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 13. The Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. 
They are more desirable than, than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Or the Pete Rambo condensed version, the Torah of God is perfect, restoring the soul. In keeping the Torah, there is great reward. Short and sweet. When did this verse or these verses stop being true? Isn't this the word of our God that stands forever? Ponder this thought deeply. The Torah is perfect instruction in righteousness that leads to great reward. That really shakes up the theology of Christendom as regards the Torah. Here's a deeper look into this passage and its implications. It shifts the old paradigm. Number 10, read Psalm 119, the whole thing. Bask in the deep love and respect the author of the psalm has for God's law, his Torah, the commandments, the ordinances, the precepts, the statutes, etc. Before my eyes were opened, this was one of the most difficult and boring chapters in scripture, uh, of Scripture in the Bible. Seriously. After the Father opened my eyes to the great wonder of His majesty as revealed in His instructions, the Torah, for how to live righteously, this psalm became a glorious source of joy. I remember taking the time to highlight every synonym of law and precepts. I got out my concordance to identify and circle in another color every occurrence of the word Torah. I highlighted in still another color whole verses that held special revelation contrary to accepted Christian doctrine. Here are a couple favorites. Verses so rich and deep that they are delicious on the tongue. Candy for the mind. Listen to these. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Torah of Yahweh. So I will keep your Torah continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your Torah. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Those who love your Torah have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your Yeshua, or salvation, O Yahweh, and do your commandments. I long for your Yeshua, salvation, O Lord, and your Torah is my delight. Those and many others in this, in this psalm alone completely shatter any idea that the Torah is done away with. Any doctrinal statement, pastor, teacher, or church father who teaches that the law is done away with prove themselves to be utterly false. Utterly false. Psalm 119 says, So I will keep your Torah continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty. That's a paradigm shifter. Do you really know the word of Yahweh? Do you really understand what forever means? I would challenge you to take off the denominational glasses and get before Yahweh and open your heart. Read his word that stands forever and accept what it says without filtering it through doctrinal statements or cultural mores. Be willing to contend for truth. Shalom.